This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Ben Perry, here with Matt Wilson. Thank you for joining us on episode 15 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Our guest today has been a firefighter for over 25 years. He's a British local national serving at RAF Alkenberry in the United Kingdom. He was recently awarded the Fire Chief's Commendation Medal for his actions during an event on August 21st, 2019, performing CPR on his wife. Here with us today to talk about his story is firefighter Bob Smith. How's it going, Bob? Hey, hi there. Yeah, real good. Thanks. How are you? Good. Great to have you on. Thank you for joining us. No problem. So can you tell us who you are and where you work? Okay, yeah. I'm firefighter Bob Smith. Um, and I work at the uh, 423rd Civil Engineering Squadron Fire Department. And that's part of the 501st Combat Support Wing over in the United Kingdom. What's life like as a firefighter in England? Oh, it's good. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good number. Yeah, especially uh, with the uh, Ministry of Defense, with you guys where I work, helping you guys out on the, uh, on the American military base. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, so tell us what that's like working for the United States Air Force as a local national firefighter. Yeah, I really enjoy it. I've been I've actually been doing it 25 years now. Um from about a year after leaving school, I, I joined the British Army, did 10 years in the army and um uh, I actually got made redundant and uh, the army went out of the way to uh, try and find us some other employment and uh, I, I, this job cropped up on the resettlement uh, board. So I uh, applied and uh, yeah, passed all the tests and uh, I've been in ever since 25 years now. It's, it's really good. I obviously I really enjoy it otherwise I'd have left, but uh, no, it's uh, it's great. I like I like working with the Americans. It's uh, you know I've never had a crossword with them. We get on really well. Uh, yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to lie to us, Bob. We... <laughs> no, no, honestly, it's really good. <laughs> and you don't work with uh, you don't work with any active duty there, right? It's all uh, kind of either local, national, British civilians or United States GS employees, right? Uh, yeah, the well, the actual fire department is about 90, 90 strong personnel. Um, the and the top tiers uh, are American. So the, the, he's got the fire chief, and he's got three uh, three American deputies like in charge of various functions like fire prevention, safety, and training. And then we've got another uh, three British assistant chiefs in charge of operations. And then of course the deputy fire chief he's British, and uh, all the, all the rest of the fire departments all all uh, uh, British. Yeah, and you guys yeah. work kind of unique schedules, right? You work either. 42 or 48 hours a week. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, it, we were all 42 up until 2012 because we were all like me, MOD, that's Ministry of Defense, which is like your equivalent DOD, right? Um, but in 2012, uh, the management changed the changed the recruitment slightly and uh, they started this LNDH, which is a local national direct hire scheme. And that's been running since 2012 and they have to work a 48-hour week. So on the back of that, they changed our working hours to 24 on, 48 off. Um, and that um, allows us both to work the same patterns at British uh, MOD and LNDH. Bob, you have Air Force fire trucks, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And we we talked before we recorded, and you also work as a volunteer, right, in the town you live in. Yeah, that's or right. Somewhere yeah. around where you live in Cambridgeshire. Yeah. Do you, Do you see a difference between the trucks? I mean, American manufactured versus I know that there has to be big differences, but yeah. What um, do you th- What do you think about them? I guess the the firefighting principles are, are always the same, but um, yeah, the American stuff's kind of cool, you know. It's bigger, it's always bigger, flashier, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah all uh, nice, lots of chrome and uh, and all that. But no, the, for pumping wise, um, yeah, they're really good. Um, 
work, they work fine. You know, I'm, not, I'm just as comfortable on either one, really. Um, we've got like your P22s, which I guess you're familiar with. We've got your rescue vehicles and your uh, water tankers. Uh, whereas in Cambridgeshire Fire Service, um, they just use like a, a Scania type uh, fire engine. Um, but, you know, we tend to, in British, uh, we tend to use a pressure system where everything's like, we have the hose reels that work on high pressure. And that's how we put out most of our most of our fires. Um, we're on a high pressure, whereas I know the American system, it's kind of more on gallonage, you know, water gallonage. But so, yeah, you, no, you, I'm comfortable with both of them. Do, do you know the reason behind that? Is it, uh, and Ben, you might be able to enlighten me too, being that you're stationed in Europe. Is there a reason? Is it water conservation, or is it just basically the science behind it? Ultra high pressure is is more effective um, in a lot of in, in like a room and contents type of fire. I don't really, to be honest. No, no. I'm not sure no. what the reasons are for that. Yeah. So I think it's a it's a standardization thing, right? I mean, Americans, it's kind of the 220 versus 110 voltage thing, right? Like we just kind of picked one and went with it. That could be part of it. I don't yeah. I don't know that there's really a solid answer that I know of. Mm. I'm sure someone out there listening that might be able to shed some light on it. If you do, listener, please uh, email us, let us know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, sure, you'll get, I'm sure you'll get a response to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure someone out there is chomping at the bit. What about, so integrating with the trucks off the installation, do you guys have a, a memorandum of agreement with uh, with surrounding communities for, oh, okay, to, yeah. to, bring, um, to bring the yeah. Air Force fire trucks and use them? And, and how do you guys integrate, uh, you know, the connections and stuff? Again, yeah. I've been stationed in Europe, so... Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, yeah, we, we we call that a mutual aid system. So um, if we had a large fire on base, uh, let's say the high school at Alkenbury, um, if that was all well alight, uh, the uh, authorities on Alkenbury can ask for the local surrounding fire services to come on and give us some support. And likewise, um, if his fire's off base, um, we can be contacted and depending on the person in charge on the fire, on the fire crew on the base at the time, we can deploy resources off base, which, which we've actually done several times. Um, and like your trucks are compatible with them. I mean, they may not operate on the same pump systems, but you know, water's water. And if you can get it one yeah. into the other, you, you know, you can be of help, right? That, that's right. Yeah. Um, we kind of make it work we've got all the adapters so we can like get one vehicle rigged up like American to British and vice versa by, by the use of adapters. Because um, uh, the British vehicles use like instantaneous, so we've got instantaneous male and female couplings on the hose connections. Whereas I know you guys on the American side have the uh, threaded type coupling, but we've got all the relevant adapters to go with all that, so we can make it all work. So yeah, we've we've helped out off off base loads of times at like recycling centres and tire fires and all that sort of sort of thing. What did you do in the army? You said in t- for ten years you were in the army. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I left school and uh, joined the British Army after about a year and. Of leaving school and did 10 years. I, I was in the transport regiment, so pretty much drove anything really from motorbikes all the way up to tanks, lorries, everything. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I did a lot of work with you guys actually out in the, in the Desert Storm out in the Gulf in 1990, 1991. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I met quite nice. a lot of uh, Americans out there. Nice. That's cool. I'm sure they appreciated your help at the time yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty crazy. Well, Bob, the main reason we asked you to join us on the podcast today was to talk about an event that happened on August 21st, 2019. So while you're off duty in your home, you found your wife not breathing unresponsive uh, and immediately started performing CPRs. Most of us have been involved in traumatic situations, but I can't imagine having to perform CPR on my wife. Can you talk to us about that event? Yeah, sure. Um, 
yeah, it was a pretty crazy day. Um, just some background on my wife. Um, she, up to that day in question, she was a perfectly fit and healthy 51-year-old. Um, doesn't hardly drink any alcohol, doesn't smoke, has a good diet, goes to the gym. She does everything right. Um, but just on that day in question, 21st of August last year, she, she woke up, as, got ready for work as normal. Um, and then uh, came back upstairs. Uh, she woke me up because I'd been out in the firing gym with my volunteer crew the night before. So she elbowed me and woke me up. And she said, oh, Bob, um, yeah, I'm going to have to uh, go sick today. I was like, oh, dear, what's the, what's the matter? And she said, yeah, I've got a headache and, um, and backache. I was like, oh, okay, headache and backache. And uh, you want to go sick? I said, okay. Um, but then she was all hot and cold. She, she climbed back on the bed and got the quilt over, and then she was sweating, took it off, and then she was cold again. So I, I thought, right, okay, yeah, you're not, you're not right. Oh, yeah. So I got up, um, got washed and dressed real quick. Um, I said, look, do you want me to ring you an ambulance? She said, no, no, I'm all right. I'm all right. It's just, I'm just, I'm just not right. Ring my, you know, she threw me a cell phone. She said, yeah, ring my boss um, and tell her I'll be going sick. So, uh, I rang a boss. It was about quarter to eight in the morning now, and she, her boss didn't answer. So I said, "Look, okay, look, I'll, I'll just go downstairs. I'll get some breakfast. I'll bring it back up, um, and I'll try your boss again." I said, "Are you sure you're okay?" She said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I made her all comfortable on the bed. Um, you know, she was talking to me. She didn't, look, she didn't look that great, but I mean, she was talking to me. And she said, "Yeah, okay, go downstairs, get a cup of tea, bring it back up, and um, and I, you know, if I'm well enough this afternoon, I'll, I'll I've got the works laptop downstairs. I'll, I'll do a bit this afternoon." So. I said, okay. I said, look, I'll leave the bedroom door open. So I went downstairs, cup of tea and a slice of toast. And uh, yeah, as I was coming back upstairs, I just had a funny feeling. And then I opened the bedroom door and I looked at it. And I just thought, oh my word, that's, uh, I could see something was massively not right. So I just put my stuff on the floor. I went straight round to her and talked to her, um, grabbed her hold of her and her head was just flopping to one side. Her tongue was sticking out. And she'd, she'd actually looked dead, which, you know, I, she was basically. So I checked for breathing and pulse, carotid pulse, um, nothing. So I, I thought, well, where's my phone? And then I thought, no, hang on a minute. I don't want to mess around ringing cell phones myself. So I shouted to my boy. I've got two boys at home, um, 16 and 18. And I shouted to my 18-year-old. I, I said, Samuel, ring, um, ring an ambulance quickly. Your mum's your mom's not right. So he, he, he got on with that. And that allowed me then to concentrate on what I was doing now. So I, I grabbed a handful of her, um, twisted her around on the bed. She was totally unresponsive. I just twisted around and lowered her onto my knee. I was aware of shaking around a bit. I didn't want to go breaking her neck or anything. So I gently got, got her onto my knee and then straightened her out on the floor, on the bedroom floor. Um, and I tilt, uh, head tilt, chin lift, you know, tilt the head back. And I was checking for breathing for 10 seconds and uh, there was nothing there. And I, I checked the carotid pulse again, five, 10 seconds, and uh, there was nothing. Um, so that's probably why I know I'd have to get her on the floor, really. You know, you need a nice firm surface, surface for CPR, don't you? So sure enough, I just put two breaths into her straight off. Um, I could see the chest rise and fall nicely. And I thought, right, okay, let's uh, let's crack on with some CPR then. So I started started CPR. Um, uh, first compression, <laughs> I think I've either cracked a rib or dislodged the rib because um, on the second compression, she was spitting blood. And I thought, oh, great, okay. <laughs> like I didn't have enough problems. So anyway, I just carried on doing CPR and then my boy brought the phone in and um, he had it on speakerphone. It was ambulance control, um, the local authority, downtown ambulance c control. And the lady was saying, oh, what's happening? What's happening? I said, oh, my wife's not well now. I mean, she's not breathing. She's got no pulse. So um, she said, oh, yeah, you're going to have to do CPR. I said, hey, look, I'm a fireman. I'm already firefighter. I'm already doing CPR. She said, oh, great. That's fantastic. She said, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll stay with you and I'll talk you through it. 
So I was, you know, grateful for her help. Um, yeah, I've been an EMT on the base for 20 years, but, you know, yeah, I, was, I was always appreciate some help. So she's sort of talking me through it. And um, between us, yeah, I just I just carried on doing the CPR. Um, and uh, that was actually uh, 17 minutes. That was a very long 17 minutes. Uh, and the lady on the phone was assuring me and saying, oh, I'm, you know, I've got all sorts of resources coming to you. Um, sure enough, 17 minutes later, um, I heard the fast, first fast response car pull up outside. Um, and the guy came running upstairs. I'd already told my boys to clear the front porch way out and make some space. I knew there'd be a team of people coming in in a rush. So we cleared all the front porch. So the guy came running upstairs with a, his jump bag and his defibrillator. And I could hear him setting up behind me. So I was, I was just concentrating so much on what I was doing. And I was just said to the lady on the phone, I said, right, your guy's behind me now. He's, he's probably going to get the uh, AED out. I was like giving him a memory jogger, but I'm sure he was already doing that. And um, yeah, sure enough, he, he then told me to move out of the way. Um, and he uh, put the two paddles on her, set it to analyze. And he, sure enough, he said, oh, okay, yeah, we're going to shock, move back. So he put one shock in, that worked. And he, you know, he tested the pulse. He said, yeah, that's, that's great. He said, yeah, we've got the pulse back now. And then he started to manage her airway because um, obviously she was all covered in, in blood by now. Whatever I did, I punched that first uh, rib, with, you know, I pressed that rib on something. Um, but he said, don't worry about it. So it's, it's nothing really. You've got the, all the airway equipment, like the eye gel and everything, and he put the eye gel in and he got her on the O2. Um, by now, another fast response car turned up uh, with the ambulance right behind it. Uh, I heard the helicopter came over the top as well, so they parked just down the road and the doc- we have a doctor on the helicopter. So they all came running in. So we, it was a right old party in the bedroom by now. Yeah, loads of people. Um, but uh, yeah, they're, they're all, they stabilized. They, they gave us some drugs. I'm not sure what they were, but they gave us some drugs to stop the brain from overloading. Um, we got her all straightened out on a stretcher and took her downstairs. Uh, then they made a group decision, mainly led by the doctor, qualified doctor. And uh, they took her down the road to uh, the hospital where what they do is they put some um, liquid around the blood system and it highlights it's like radioactive it, and they can x-ray it and it highlights any problems and uh, it was a little old artery called the circumflex artery at the back of the heart which actually feeds the heart itself blood that got blocked up and they said it was slightly narrowed for whatever reason and on that day the little blood clot had just blocked it up and that was stopping the heart from working so they, they within about an hour of being at the hospital they fitted her with a stent you know to open the artery up and um, they woke her up that afternoon in the hospital about 4pm um, I was sat there holding her hand and she opened her eyes. She was looking around, but she couldn't talk. She had all this stuff in her mouth, all this medical stuff. And, um, you know, I was talking to her and I didn't want to freak her out too much. And I just said, oh, okay. Yeah, you can remember this morning. I said, you weren't very well. And she nodded her head. I said, right. I said, after a while, I, could, I you know, we called an ambulance and uh, you're in hospital now. And she was looking down the room at the nurses and everything. And then uh, I let that sink in for a couple of minutes. And then um, I said, uh, yeah, I said, yeah, you had a heart attack. <laughs> She started crying and then, uh, you know, after a minute, she was kind of realized, I kept saying to her, look, everything's all right now. They found found a problem, but it's all fixed. They've put a stent in you now and, um, you, you know, you're all, you're all okay again. So, um, and then she, about, it was about five days later that she was allowed home. She's been perfectly all right ever since. Bob, that's a, an incredible story. It sounds like you, you kept your cool, you acted quickly and you remembered your training, which is kind of what they always preach to us. Um, keep a level head. Yeah. None of us will ever expect to do that on our wife or someone in our own house. I don't think, or at least hope not to what was going through your head 
while you were doing CPR and you said you were focused on the task at hand. Is there anything yeah. else kind of rolling around? I was absolutely focused. I, you know, to the extent where I didn't even want to get involved with making phone calls. I shouted at my boy to do that. I didn't want to get bogged down with, you know, operators and questions and everything. I just thought, you know, I know what's, uh, what's on the table here. If I don't do this properly, she isn't going to make it. Um, but yeah, as I say, that was a long 17 minutes. So I kept cool, kept calm. Um, I learned from that first compression that was just about half a centimeter too much. And I must've got it just spot on after that. And I just thought, yeah, I just need to get this absolutely right because if I don't, not only might she die, but then I forget it half right, you know, I don't have time to think, well, you know, she might be brain damaged and all this sort of carry on. And, you know, then everybody's like, you know, our lives, it'll be massively different from that day onwards. So I thought this, you know, this needs to go perfectly. Otherwise we're all in trouble. So, uh, yeah, just keep, keep calm. Really. I was just, you know, I was grateful for the assistance from the operator on the phone. And mm. obviously when the guys started turning up outside. So you, this has been what, eight, eight months or so at this point, uh, you said your wife's healthy. Mm. So, you know, thank goodness yeah. for that. Yeah. So you've had time to kind of reflect on that moment. And I know you've had a little bit of, um, they did a PA article on you and it circulated around and you're talking to us today. So you've had some time to kind of think through the event, uh, reflect back. What kind of key takeaways would you be able to share with the listeners about, you know, that moment in a moment like that, if anyone was faced with that situation? Yeah. Well, I think in the first instance, Fully, you know, if you have any training, you know, just think about think about it. Just stay calm, like we've already said, and then straight away, if they're looking like they're unresponsive, get straight in there and check for the breathing. No breathing, is there a pulse? If there's no breathing, and no pulse, you've absolutely got to crack straight on with that CPR straight away. You know what I mean? Don't waste any time thinking it through. If, if they're not breathing and got no pulse, you need you need to get on with that. Um, and also, probably the, what you might have heard is the chain of survival. You know, I mean, that's, you know, fast recognition of the problem and then get straight onto 911, 999 in our case over here in the UK. Yeah, get some help on its way and get on with that CPR. Um, and then as soon as you can get an AED on scene, um, get that AED in use. And then obviously ALS, advanced life support um, as soon as you possibly can. Now, was this your first time doing CPR on anybody or had you done it before? Okay, yeah. So... I've uh, been a volunteer just about the same length of time as I have at, at Alconbury with the MOD, uh, with the Americans. So about 25 years um, downtown. It's 25 years this month, in fact. Um, so I've, this is, I think I was, my wife, I think it was about the sixth or seventh time of doing it. And that was the other thing that was going through my mind because on all the other occasions, it was unsuccessful. But there was there's other underlying reasons for that, like um, you know, massive trauma or the individual was like, like really old, like nearly a hundred or whatever. And, you know, because in the fire engine downtown, we sometimes get called out to care homes and all that. If the ambulances are really stretched, you know, they might send a, a fire engine because, you know, you've got a set of people on there that have some training in the oxygen and the AED. So, you know, we, we it's not a case of going through the motions. You know, you try your hardest to save somebody's life, don't you? But, you know, perhaps they were already dead for quite, quite, a, quite a long time, a few hours, whatever. Um, so yeah, none of the other sort of half a dozen times I've done it's ever, it's ever worked. And that was also playing on my mind. Well, um, you know, in that long 17 minutes, I was thinking, oh, great. <laughs> but yeah, I had to remember that there was a massive difference between my wife and, and everybody else because my wife had been fit and healthy up to that morning. You know, and she was only 51 years old. So, and you know, I know she's got good diet and doesn't smoke or anything like that. So she, she had everything going for her, which I think is why the, 
when it was rang in, you know, the local authority ambulance service through through everything at us, you know, we've got the helicopter and everything and they thought, yeah, this, this is a quite a savable life, you know, and in the end, it, sure enough, it worked out great. So a helicopter, you must live in a rural area. Um, Cambridgeshire, yeah, yeah, quite rural-ish, yeah. yeah. 17 minutes of CPR in a helicopter tells me that yeah, that uh, you're probably far away from definitive care or far enough away till they got to send a helicopter. Well, right? we, well we, have, we have hospitals relatively yeah. close. I mean, there's one about 10 miles away. Um, they didn't, for some reason, they didn't take it to that one. Uh, the one they chose to take it to um, was about sort of half an hour's drive on blue lights. Um, but that's what the doctor's paid for. You know, he, he, he knows everything that's in the hospital. You know, that, yeah, I guess probably that, a cardiac care unit there. Exactly. Yeah, they had a better stuff in that hospital to, to deal with her and sure enough in the end it, that worked out fine but so yeah i mean she went in the box body ambulance didn't actually use the helicopter in the end to, to transport her okay. but you know we were grateful for the doctor and his team to turn up and mm-hmm. offer their advice and support yeah it's an awesome uh, resource have yeah. a doctor oh, yeah. come to your house you know, oh, yeah. in an emergency and he, yeah and of course he's got all his meds with him as well which maybe the ambulance didn't have possibly i'm not sure but yeah you know so 17 minutes and I know for those of us who have performed CPR or even been in a, in a, in a traumatic, had a traumatic experience and your adrenaline's going, did you find yourself fatigued at any point? Surprisingly or, not. Yeah. Yeah. They always say that it is, CPR is hard work, but um, yeah, I, I didn't even break sweat. You know, I remember now I was just focused so much on it. I was just concentrating on getting it right. Um, yeah. No, I was, um, I felt like I could have probably kept going all day, whether I could or not, I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, Ben was asking a minute ago, you know, all the things to remember. And I said about keeping calm and the chain of survival. But the, another takeaway is just keep on those rapid, regular and deep compressions. You know, you've really got to make that heart work. You know, you're basically acting for the heart, aren't you, by getting it, pumping that blood around. Um, and you don't overly worry about the breaths. Um, talking to other ambulance technicians since, you know, the compressions are more important than the breaths, but you know, I was glad to put those two in straight off before she um, started spitting blood or anything. But um, and the other thing was, don't worry about breaking the ribs. A lot of the, all the doctors just smiled at the hospital when I said, "Oh, I think I broke a rib." And yeah, they just smiled because you, you know there's such a fine line between not doing it right, doing it exactly perfect, and then and then damaging a rib. You know, and they'd rather have you damage a rib than not do it you know, not go that extra centimeter and get it right because then the person will either die or get brain damage. So yeah, he was, doctors were all pleased with me that, you know, that, um, that I was doing it properly. Is the protocol there 30 to two? Uh, yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So yeah. did you, you did 32 or did you continue just compressions? Uh, I just started with the compress. I just continued with the compressions. And uh, that's another interesting point, Matt, because, um, like I say, well, something went wrong on that first compression and I ruptured some sort of blood vessel. And after two minutes, I was thinking, right, so just a minute, am I going to put another two breaths in here? Because a mouth's full of blood. And what I was conscious of was um, I don't want to blow any, you know, force any blood into her lungs. Um, but I've spoke to some ambulance technicians since then. And, and they, what they said was what happened on the day, which was uh, my wife, after two minutes of CPR, did actually try to start breathing for herself. So she did take several breaths in after those first two minutes of CPR. Um, and that was a massive help. You know, that's, that's pretty much stopped me from having to blow, you know, uh, breathe, breathe for and uh, potentially uh, put blood into her lungs. 
Um, so yeah, so the, the few breaths that she took when I paused after two minutes um, was um, was sufficient. Now, did you stop and uh, you know assess for breathing and and consciousness and circulation a few times during that, or did you just keep going? Um, yeah, about every two minutes um, on the okay. advice on the phone as well, and uh, that was when that gave my wife a chance to sort of take a few take a few breaths. Um, you know, she she got kind of gasped five seconds, another one, ten seconds, another one, fifteen seconds, another one, and then operator said, "Yeah, let's let's start CPR again." So okay. she was getting some air into her, some oxygen into her, which was a massive help. Yeah, but she was still um, unconscious throughout the whole event. Oh yeah, oh crikey, yeah, oh she was yeah. great. Her skin color was just great. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Well, Bob, in the article that we read, we saw that you were awarded the Fire Chief's Commendation Medal. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there was a nice little ceremony at work. Um, all, the, all the bosses turned up and um, my uh, MOD fire bosses as well turned up. And yeah, I got this, the, like the fire, brigade, fire Service Lifesavers Medal and commendation from, the, from my fire chief. So yeah, that was, a, that was a great day. I got my wife on the base. Uh, so everyone could... Prove that I done it okay, and uh, yeah, she was all there. We had a we had a you know a nice old day. We all had lunch and had a laugh and a you know talk about it all. And it was yeah, really a really good day. Not put some put some good good closure on it really. Man, it's just been great to hear your your side of the story, and and uh, we you know obviously thankful that your your wife came out a a positive outcome on the situation. Um. You know, while you have this captive audience here, uh, anything you'd like to share before we finish up today? Well, as, as far as CPR, it's what we've already covered. Yeah, just, yeah, get straight in, check breathing, pulse. If there's nothing, get straight on. Don't be afraid of doing any more damage because if you don't get on with it, they're going to die anyway. Um, yeah, and in the bigger fire service picture, i just say, like to say thanks to you guys very much for employing me for 25 years. Um, I hope I'll be there till I retire. It's Actually, a brilliant job. I love being a firefighter, and I'm sure you two do as well, and all your listeners. Um, yeah, it's just it's just great, you know. It's it's just lovely working on the base. Everyone's really friendly. We all get on. Um, my advice would be to you guys, because you're probably a bit younger than me. Um, just enjoy life, because you never know when it's going to end. <laughs> yeah, it's great advice, and uh, we we don't employ you. We are we're right there next to you, man. We're we're employees too, so. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're peers, you know what I mean? So. <laughs> we're in it together. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, it was great, great having you on, Bob. Uh, nice, thanks, thank for, you. thanks for sharing your story. Thanks. Yeah, yeah no problem. Yeah, please. I um, hope for, hope somebody might learn from it or take something away. And yeah, um, yeah, you never know. <laughs> All right. Take care. Yeah. Thanks very much. That's it for this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more content just like this regularly posted on our Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Fire Dog Podcast. That is facebook.com forward slash the Fire D-A-W-G Podcast. Now you can also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn. Please like and subscribe and don't forget to share this episode. This has been Perry with Matt Wilson and our guest Bob Smith. Until next time, stay safe.